Flying Joker, why did you join my beloved corps? Sir, to kill, sir! So you're a killer? Sir, yes, sir! Let me see your war face. Sir! You got a war face? Ah! That's a war face! Now let me see your war face! Ah! Bullshit! You didn't convince me! Let me see your real war face! Ah! Well, everybody's heard about the bird. You're listening to the Hollywood Saloon. One, two, three, four, I love The DA breaks into the prison, runs down death row. But I guess they're too late. The gas pellets have been dropped. She's dead. I tell you, there's not a dry eye in the house. She's dead? She's dead. She's dead. Because that's the reality. The innocent die. Who's the DA? Ah, no one. No one? No stars on this project. We're going out a limb on this one. You know, uh, like unknown stage actors or maybe somebody English, like what's his thing? Mm-hmm. Why? 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 Because this story is just too damned important to risk being overwhelmed by personality. Okay, hey everybody, this is Andy, and with me, of course, is John, Jansen Human Film Database. Oh, hello, welcome all. Welcome all indeed. Uh, to another episode of the Hollywood Saloon. We are up to episode 17 now, and uh, we're just going to kind of dive in here today, um, uh, you know, with this topic, and uh, I just wanted to kind of tell you what happened to me last night, and uh, it's kind of just facilitated uh, where we're going with this episode, and uh, I watched a movie that I'd seen, you know, four or five times in my life before, but... On this particular occasion, I mean, and and uh, it's you know it's a little film you might have heard of, of course, before. It's called Full Metal Jacket, directed by our good uh, buddy, uh, Mr. Stanley Kubrick. Now, we're not going to try to kill you with Stanley Kubrick because we we we've, we've stated before, and everyone knows that we're headed toward a uh, Stanley Kubrick masterclass uh, real soon here. Uh, but needless to say, what happened was is I just set up, and, and as I'm doing my uh, you know rewatching films to get ready for the masterclass, which is our you know, our standard operating procedure here in the saloon is to get, you know, uh, ready to go and uh, refreshed. But as I was watching this, I kind of saw it with new eyes. And I don't know if it's because, you know, in the saloon now, my mind has been set up more toward looking looking at films differently these days or whatnot. But I think what happened is that for the first time, I really saw it via looking at it through uh, the eyes of Stanley Kubrick. And I think before, I've, I've always watched it as an outsider and just enjoyed it for what it was, you know, a great war movie with a lot of good action and that kind of stuff. But for this time, I watched it through the eyes of, of him as a director. I noticed things, going back and watching th- things like Paths of Glory and, 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 and checking out how Stanley Kubrick really def- uh, set up his, uh, his style of directing and his visual sense with uh, long tracking shots and stuff like that. And you really noticed it in, in, in Full Metal Jacket. And it became... It changed for me. Something crossed over inside of me, and it became less a fun little film and more of a uh, a, a master work. You know, uh, something that transcends time, something that will endure, um, a classic, if you will. 
And it, it, it got me thinking about something as I took the film from uh, the point of entertainment to the point of history. And I think that's what I want to look at today here on the saloon is looking at films as if they were in a time capsule uh, 30 years from now. 50 years from now, 100 years from now, when we open the time capsule and we pull out films of the past, what are we going to pull out? You know, when we go in that time capsule, are we going to pull out Shrek 2? Is that the <laughs> film Is that the film that's going to mark us in time? Or are we going to pull out things like Full Metal Jacket? Or are we going to pull out things like Citizen Kane? Or are we going to pull out things, you know, uh, that really stand the test of time? And, you know, and, and, and I've been trying to look for, for a title for this episode and you know at first I wanted to call it endure but then I figured endure is is it's going through hard times and that's not really what it is and then I thought well maybe it's legacy you know now people can have a legacy but I think films can have a legacy or mm -hmm. the film itself becomes a legacy <clears throat> and I think the thing that you know as I'm seeing this film differently and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking about history too okay because and if you think about this, this is pretty common sense, is that your average typical person doesn't study every topic in the world. They pick two or three topics that they know very well. But let's say the average layman person who doesn't, you know, who's not a real history buff but still enjoys war movies, their knowledge of war films, let's take Vietnam, for instance, here, comes from entertainment. It comes from films. It comes from Apocalypse Now, from Full Metal Jacket, from Platoon. Most... Or from a lot of, you know, very uh, rare 16-millimeter film that was shot in Vietnam at the time. That's one of the most interesting things about Vietnam is it was one of the most photographed and filmed wars. Because we did have film cameras and journalists were over there and even soldiers. Right. I mean, there's some fantastic combat footage, horrifying stuff that you can get taking from, you know, inside helicopters that uh, I think you know, was, was being shown to the people and it, it kind of was Vietnam the movie was no, no, the experience it, of that war. No, and that's and that's good, but that's that's really I mean and that's true and that's what helped that's what helped historians fill out their vision of what that war was all about. But I mean I, you even get the great scene in Full Metal Jacket where you have the guy making the film, you know, the oh, documentary exactly, film. Exactly. Exactly. You know. So right. that's the film we're seeing right. back and, home. Right. It was such a big thing that happened that they even made note of it in Apocalypse Now also. So mm -hmm. it's there. The press, it was the first televised war. Okay. And a lot of people who were living in that time, you know, that was what they got when they came home to the, to the evening news. There was no 24-hour news channel. You came home from work, you turned on the news, and, you know, you got to see Cronkite talking about, you know, Vietnam, and we saw the deaths right there. But... I think I think I'm not really going there right now. What I'm what I'm saying is is that for the average person today, how many years has it been since Vietnam? Thirty years or something? Plus. Thirty years plus. But I think what happens is that people the average person today who has seen Platoon has seen these films, they base their knowledge of history more so on films than they do on history. So I think that makes films at this point, and you can you can you can take any topic out there, and it's going to be the same thing. Mm -hmm. You can take any topic. You can look at films like JFK. You know that's what I mean? According to point out, there's plenty of people that look at JFK and say that's what really happened. Well, that's an opinion, and that's there's great. There's plenty of people that look at it and say that's a bunch of crap. Exactly. But as Oliver Stone, you know, said when he made it. 
is it's a companion piece to the Warren Report. Because right. equal amount of people look at the Warren Report and say, well, I believe everything in it, just because. <laughs> right. And other people right. look at it and say, have you ever actually read it? Or are you just basing your opinion on the Warren Report on somebody else's opinion? Right. I mean, have you actually read the entire volumes of the Warren Report and have you formulated an opinion, you know? Oliver Stone has read it, you know, so he's sort of condensing what his view is, and he felt like there was a lot of holes in the Warren Report's findings. And so he had to make a film, which was his medium, instead of just writing it out to uh, to plug those holes, if you will. Well, and let's, let, and let's take it as this, is that people are perfectly happy with allowing someone with no credentials like Oliver Stone to dictate history to them. Now, I'm not... I'm not saying that Oliver Stone isn't well studied in the topic of JFK or Platoon. Obviously he lived through he lived through Platoon to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. So he you know he was an eyewitness account to uh, the situation. But I think that people as they view entertainment um have allowed they've given over I mean who's to say that the guy who directed Salvador has the right to tell us this is what Platoon this is what Vietnam was like. Why does the fact that he had a a, a, a a small indie hit with Salvador allow him to tell us this is Vietnam and then we're just going to say hey you want to know what Vietnam is like go watch Platoon you know what I mean we're very happy to allow people in Hollywood because of the power of the medium and I think that's what I'm talking about here is the power of the medium not the power and the knowledge of the director but what film is how it has become so important to all of us well you're right because you know that was the the great Cinderella story about Oliver Stone right. is this: he could go and speak out against the Vietnam War and about the Vietnam War and tell a story about it because he was there, and he wasn't drafted; he volunteered, and right. he actually went back. You know, he he did what a lot of you know rich kids of influence were not going to do. Right. You know, right. Stone wanted to go there, so he you know the media had to get behind the story mm-hmm. and had to get behind Oliver Stone because i mean let's face it he was the real thing had he not been to vietnam right. and this was just a a story he concocted it would have been very different the thing that's interesting to me that i'm trying to get at here is that it's really entertainment versus history and i'm not i mean and i'm not going that way that's not what i'm talking about for this entire episode but in this particular point and you know and Oliver Stone's about to do it again because he's the one who's decided to take on the the first big dollar version of uh the September 11th story right his world trade center right film. and 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 at the time when that comes out now i know they're doing flight 93 first mm-hmm. um and that and that's fine that's one story but i think that the one that people the the when people think about 911 it's the World Trade Center. And so he's making the film World Trade Center. This will be the definitive film on this topic for the time being. Well, and I, I don't know. I don't know how the word definitive, if that's really fair to use. Well, no, no. It's, it's the, the story that they're choosing to tell is very specific and very small. Sure. It's, it's just the story of two men and their struggle. There's, you know, 3,000 stories plus, sure. you know, in World Trade Center. And I think it's probably a good thing that Stone is not trying to do the big ensemble, multi-story, trying to cram it all in. Because what happens is you risk turning into Irwin Allen, you know, and it becomes a soap opera and the World Trade Center becomes the vehicle around it. Well, he's not going to try to Titanic it, yeah. Well, and it's it's this is this is the right film to tackle because it almost seems like a very small film, an intimate film, 
about you know two people and you know an extraordinary day in their lives. Sure. And it, it just sort of it gets rid of all the other excess baggage that could go along with it. You know, there's no need for a conspiracy theory. There's no need for a right. plot. Right. You know, um, it's just focusing in on the human element, um, and more importantly, the American human element. Well, see, and I think that's great. But it's interesting that of all the directors, the one who decides they decide to put it in their hands is Oliver Stone, because of anyone these days who is a filmmaking historian he is possibly the one if you look at his roster of films jfk nixon on and on you know what i mean well and, and also i think you know it's it, it works on a couple of ways because he's coming off a big flop with alexander right, again right. historical project that was dear to his heart right that uh, was not embraced by the audiences especially in america and overseas mm-hmm. um it fared you know a little bit better but uh, that's the best time. We even talked about this in Movie Jail. But that's the best time to hire a director, literally, is when they're coming off a film <laughs> like that. Stone right. didn't sit around and mope for a year or two. He jumped on a film right away, right. you know. And, I mean, he's always been like that. I mean, you really got to gotta take your hats off to Oliver Stone unless you can find another director that can, you know, have the kind of output mm-hmm. he had from the time he made Salvador to the time he made Any Given Sunday. Right, you know Salvador from you know eighty five, eighty six, all the way up to to ninety nine. The output of films is extraordinary in the range and the epic scope and the experimentation. You know, and they're all real films. You know, right. I mean, he only really stepped out to make one movie, which was really uh, U Turn, mm-hmm. which is really kind of movie ish. He even took on the credit an Oliver Stone movie, right, specifically for that film. But all the others. You know, are playing with uh, with topics that certainly skirt with uh, the pages of history. And I think, and I think that's that's his niche. He he is aligning himself up to be remembered because he is marking times, um, uh, and that's great. And like I said, when these films end up in the time capsule, and a lot of them are good enough to do so, um, a lot of people will remember those times by the films that we have made, because I know that. Now, when we think about history, when we think about the Civil War, there's a lot of people who go to Gone with the Wind. So I think that I think that, and, and, and like I said, I'm not trying to go on. You know, the, the topic of this show is historical films. Well, and also, I mean, go a step further. Go to Ken Burns's extraordinary work on his Civil War film. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, if you want to know about the Civil War, don't you go to that? And isn't no, sure. that a film visual interpretation? That's, well, that's that's different, though. The only thing he did not do was just try to turn it into a narrative feature with ha- actors acting right, out right. roles. Well, see, that's that's what I'm talking about. That's the difference here, is that I'm talking about... Are you talking about staging history no, no. or just documenting history with film? Well, no, I, I'm, us- I'm, using, I'm using this to get to another point. And the point is, the point is, is that people see films... Fictional film, not documentary, okay? Mm-hmm. Fictional film that is that's, that goes to the box office, that desires to make a profit, that is entertainment, quote-unquote, as history, okay? I think the modern consensus is that a lot of people will do such a thing. I know that I'm guilty of it, too. I'm willing to put my, my, my decision-making of history sometimes in the hands of a filmmaker who is just able to get out there, who who wants to make a statement on this particular historical issue. So, but that's not the point I'm trying to get to. 
the point I'm trying to get into is that that's what people do. And if that's the case, what makes a film historical or what makes a film more than entertainment? Okay? Because when you look at film as entertainment, now, there is nothing wrong with entertainment. We love entertainment. That is ultimately why we go to the movies. You know what I mean? There's really not much historical about Raiders of the Lost Ark. It plays in a historical frame so that we can grab onto it. But at the same time, it's just good old fun. Okay? But the film is good enough to transcend entertainment, and we, we push it and we say, this film is better than the rest of the average that was out there. Now, when I look at films today and I say, are there less historical films? I don't mean films based on history. I mean films that transcend entertainment, that become more, that we want to put in, that we want to label as legacy. Because a film like Full Metal Jacket will mark the time. People will look back on this film and probably Apocalypse Now also and say, this is a depiction of the Vietnam War. Well, it's almost like they're they're the the standard operating kit of war movies now uh-huh. that you just watch. I mean, uh, a film like Jarhead even has to reference both of those films right, in it. Right. Uh, where the soldiers are watching, you know, either Apocalypse Now or Full Metal Jacket because it's so ingrained in in our society, in our pop culture. I mean, when we talk Vietnam films, there's a few of them that are going to pop into mind right away. Right. You know, it will be Platoon. It will be Full Metal Jacket. You know, uh, often Deer Hunter will, yeah. will come up. Right. And Apocalypse Now almost certainly will get mentioned eventually. Uh, there are others, but uh, those are the sort of what is now known as the canon right. of Vietnam films. But now, you know, there's other Vietnam stories. Sure, Coming Home sure. is a Vietnam story, but we're talking about the Vietnam War. Now, now think know? about think about how important these films are. Now, though, okay, let's let's take it off of the, off of the realm of history. When uh, Paramount wanted to make Top Gun, they you can't just make Top Gun. You can't go and just make. Hey, it's Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer. Let's go and make some jets. You know what I mean? They can't do that. They have to go to the U.S. military and say, we want to borrow some jets because we Mm -hmm. can't pay $100 million per jet. Right. Right? Now, the military has to look at that film and say, hmm, yes or no. Will Mm -hmm. this help? Can this be a promotional film for us? You know damn well that people went and signed up for the military after they saw Top Gun and said, I want to be a flight, you know, I want to be like Maverick. I want to be like sure. Goose, you know. I, I've, met, I've met a few of them. Right, actually. I want to fly jets. So see, here we go. Obviously, we know who the producers are. We know who the director is, you know, our good buddy Tony Scott, okay? Tony Scott is an entertainment director, yet he is changing lives with media and entertainment and that people will, will say, this movie influenced me not to become a filmmaker, but it influenced my life in such a way that I wanted to become a pilot. Mm-hmm. And their entire life and their family's life and everything after that has completely changed because of that one experience. That is the power of film. And that is mm-hmm. why film transcends uh, you know, music and other art forms because everything comes into one. Okay? Now, the thing that I think is very important when it comes to cinema in general is that we need 
these types of movies. There's nothing wrong with entertainment, like I said, but as a species, these movies fuel our existence. We learn and we grow by these statements that come out. Whether or not there's a lot of validity to them or not, people are inspired to become more. And when I look at the landscape today, and this is what got me too, because Full Metal Jacket was made in what year? 89? It came out in uh, the summer of 87. 87, okay. Uh, but he had been working on it for over, over two years. Right. You know, so I mean, I know he was shooting in 84, 85. Right. Now, the thing, the thing that I look at today is because of the trend, you start asking yourself, are times changing so much that less and less as we go forward, we're going to get less monumental films. We're going to get less films that are, are a legacy, films that will endure. Certainly there are some films that will last a long time. I have a hard time believing that Crash, winner of the Best Picture, is going to be one of those films. Now, some people may get upset with that, but that's just my personal opinion. Well, I don't know. Do you think shortcuts will endure? No, I don't. Okay, and then if shortcuts won't endure, the only thing that'll keep Crash enduring is that Best Picture label. Right, that's the the only fact thing. that it'll always be on a list, mm-hmm. and one day, you know, twenty five years from now, someone's going to want to look at every single Best Picture winner. Sure, they're not in for a lot of great films, actually. Right. <laughs> if anyone that really wants to go down that list and watch them all and not watch the other films that didn't make it right. is in for, you know, not a lot of treats. There's some good stuff on there, don't get me wrong. Right. But they're going to miss out on a lot of stuff. Well, now, here, here's, here's the thing that's interesting, and I went and looked up some numbers to back this up because I wanted to see if my assumption was correct, that times have changed. Now, we know that times have changed. We know about the box office slump and all that crap that we've talked about in previous episodes. But I think that the trend is so huge now and so overindulgent and, and, and encompasses so much that it's shifting the fabric of what is happening with the film and the outcome and where we're going to be in the future. Because, I, because think about this. Like I said, everything is shifted these days, as we know, to opening weekend, right? That is what we're, we're shooting for. That's not true on all, on all counts. But, you know... The Hills Have Eyes, or whatever that's called, The Fog, all these, you know, uh, are, are A Stranger in the House, or whatever that one was called. Right. When a Stranger Calls, right? When a Stranger Calls. The McMovies are geared toward opening weekend. Let's spend small dollars. Let's push it. Let's make our money in the first weekend. Let's get money on DVD. We've made our profit. We're out the door. Okay? And a lot of the, you know, a lot of the predecessors, the originals, you know, the Friday the 13th sequels sure. and, you know, all that stuff we lived through. That was the same mentality. Sure, you know? sure. You got to throw a product out there and you try and, you know, the idea is make as much money before word of mouth gets out that says you don't have a good movie. Sure. But the, the situation is today, and this is what's interesting, because I said, okay, what was it like, what was the same situation like 20 years ago? Okay, so I went and looked up some numbers. Okay, now we're talking opening weekend box office. Okay. Um, I looked at the year 1986. We're in 2006, 20 years back. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, Down and Out in Beverly Hills, believe it or not, was at the top of the box office for three weeks in a row. Mm-hmm. In January and February. From March 21st to April 6th, uh, it went three weekends at number one, Police Academy 3. Mm-hmm. Okay? I'm not kidding you. Um, 
Karate Kid 2 went three weeks in a row. Number one. Uh, Aliens in 1986 went four weeks in a row. Okay, I understand that. That's great. That's a film that transcends, I believe. Um, Stand By Me went three weeks. Okay, I can buy into that too. Now check this out. Crocodile Dundee, 1986. How many weeks in a row did it go? Oh, what was it, like 10, 13? Nine weeks in a row. Nine weeks? Nine weeks. That is impossible today. Okay? Um, To round out the year, uh, between December 12th and January 11th, 1987, The Golden Child, five weeks in a row at number one. Right. Okay? How improbable is that? Because everyone today looks at The Golden Child and thinks, flop? Will The Golden Child be remembered? No. Five weeks at number one. Eddie was so hot after Beverly Hills Cop. Sure. Everyone was sure. waiting for that next movie. They were. And that's fine. It's a, it's a fine movie. There's a couple of laughs in it, but it's, you know, it's pretty awful. But uh, anyways, um, and, you know, I'm going to get to 2005, but, you know, on our way to 2005, something happened in 1997, and, of course, that's what we all know is Titanic. Fifteen weeks at number one. Okay? Unheard of. But the reason that Titanic became the, the biggest domestic box office film in history was that 15 weeks in a row. It wasn't like episode three, Star Wars episode three, where it all happened in two weekends. Well, yeah, it didn't, it, it didn't dip below 20 million until after that, right? Right. It stayed 20 million every week. Every week, like every week. 20 weeks. million, 20 million, 20 million. And that was, that was its path to victory. I mean, it didn't go really high. It didn't have, like, jump to 27 and then come back down. It was just right. steadily right. right around in there. And, you know, that's word-of-mouth business. That's people that's taking right. grandmother back to see it. Right. But you think, like, things like this. You think about The Golden Child five times on a mediocre film, okay, five weekends in a row, and you see the difference at what's going on today. Their only bet to make money back then was that it had repeat business. Next weekend, next weekend, next weekend. We want to see our Eddie. We want to see our Eddie. Okay? Now let's go to 2005. Only one movie went three weeks at number one. Can you guess what it is? I don't know. Star Wars? Nope. No, it wasn't even that, was it? Nope. Star Wars went two weeks. It was knocked out of the box by Madagascar. Okay? Wow. Only one movie, and that was Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Wow. Okay? That's the only film. When you compare that to, to 20 years ago, you see what's going on when a film like Police Academy 3 goes three weeks at number one. And uh-huh. in 2005, only one film. That, shows, that, that to me is proof that the trend is towards opening weekend. Now, maybe it's because we have more films. Maybe it's because we're clustering all of our films toward the same time of the year, toward summertime. Well, there is a lot of product, and there's, I mean, even just, it's not all so seasonal anymore Mm -hmm. to where, you know, it it used to be that that period between January and May in 86, you didn't have five films opening every weekend, you know, or four films or three films, you know, there would be some weekends where only one film would open, you know, and that'd be the only new film. That's very rare today that a film could get a weekend all by itself. Well, but what's so amazing is that the box office winner of the year is episode three, but it only spends two weeks at the top of the charts. So the majority of its money was not made in the long haul. It was made in two weeks. 
it's in that consistent because it's going to be tough to beat the opening weekend when you have the new thing out. Everyone wants sure. to go see the new thing. Sure. Um, your thing just has to make solid numbers, right. you know, and, and stay in those cinemas and, and still be available to people. Um, but yeah, it's, I think also you have to consider the repeat business has moved to DVD sales. Sure. Well, and that's something people we have now gotten in their mind. It's like, ah. Eh, I liked it, but I'm not going to go see it again. I'm just going to buy the DVD. Sure, sure. And when they make that decision, you know, that's another, you know, admission and popcorn that didn't get sold at the theater that time. But it also means that's why you have such high DVD sales. No, you know? no. So like Harry Potter can sell, what, $4 million when it comes out? Right. Or whatever. Well, and, you know, at least it got those three weeks at, at the top. But I think that those numbers show you the... The disparity we're talking about here, the difference between 20 years ago and today, is that now it's all based in that opening weekend. And it's a different vision today of success than it was 20 years ago. Because if you, if, if, as we know with Kong Bomb, Kong Bomb. Uh, if you're not hot your first weekend, here comes the talk, here comes the trouble. You know what I mean? You, uh, they're going to start questioning what's going on. So the vision of success has changed. And because if you're not hot on that first weekend and and what it does is I think that the whole idea, it screws with it. It really skews our whole idea of uh, of box office. It does. And I think, you know, there's really not a lot you can do. I mean, it's in place. You just can't turn back the tide, you know, trying to hold it. Um, You almost have to embrace it and find a way to work yourself back into the system before you can change it. And I think from the studio's perspective, really the only thing that they can do is exactly what these low-budget horror cheapies are doing. Mm-hmm. They have to make movies cheaper. I mean, didn't Lucas have a quote come out about a week ago saying in the future all movies will cost around $15 million? Right, right. You know, that's that's the only way that you can make it so profitable because if you can make your budget back your opening weekend, everything else after that's profit. right. You know, so if we can get movie, if we know that, I mean, we know that there's a possibility to make a hundred million dollars in one weekend now mm-hmm. with any with a certain type of film with a Spider-Man. Right. But we also know that another a, a good mid-range unknown or sequel or remake property can do twenty to twenty-five mm-hmm. in an opening weekend. There's an audience out there that'll support that figure. So it's just a matter of can you make the movie in that range? Right. Now, now let me tell you this. Now, back to our opening theory that we were starting with, or idea that we were starting with, is that because of this new uh, trend that that, we're, that it's all about, you know, opening weekend, like we've talked about for a long time, and how the numbers, you look at the numbers and they're different, and then you ask yourself, does this trend affect the movies of today and in the future? How many movies are we going to take out? They're going to make that AFI list. Now, I know, you know, AFI lists are all opinion and whatnot. But in a situation like this, when we're talking history, when we're talking 50 years from now, and everyone is going to forget The Hills Have Eyes, and everyone is going to forget The Fog remake, and everyone is going to forget these films that came out and were number one at the box office for a week. You know, the little, the little you know, crappies. You know, the, the McMovies. You know what I mean? And how many films are going to make that AFI list or are going to make that, you know, the one that are going to make it into the film registry if the studios are completely geared toward opening weekend, okay? And how does that change the future? Because now 
if it's impossible, not impossible, but improbable, and there's less opportunity to make a certain type of film, that doesn't bode well for our cinematic future. You know, just look at just look at the 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 box office. Okay, I'm gonna look at the all-time box office list. Okay, why does the domestic box office exist? It means nothing. <laughs> Titanic number one, Star Wars number two, Shrek two number three, ET number four, episode Star Wars episode one five, Spider-Man six. Star Wars Episode 3, number 7. Lord of the Rings, uh, Return of the King, number 8. Spider-Man 2, number 9. Passion of the Christ, number 10. Okay. It means nothing. It's only pure dollar value. It exists so that people can have a bragging list. It means nothing. And, certainly, how many films out of there are you going to take to the time capsule? Which of those films mark mark a time? Some of them do, yes. Titanic, Star Wars, mm-hmm. at least A New Hope. Okay? Mm-hmm. Maybe E.T., you know? Uh, Some might argue for The Passion. Oh, well, no, I think definitely The Passion, probably. At least from a from a cultural, religious perspective. Okay? Yeah, it, w- it was a cultural phenomenon. Right, right. Now, things become very much different. But, but I mean, like I was saying earlier, uh, who, is Shrek 2 a movie that transcends time? Is Shrek 2, like Full Metal Jacket, a movie that's going to go into a time capsule? Is it an important film? No, it's entertainment. And a lot of people wanted to see it, and they spent their money to go see it. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's wonderful. But in Hollywood's attempt to continue to, re- to remake that... Well, you've got to ask yourself what you want to make, too. I mean, this, this goes back to the old conversation. Is, is Do you want to make a piece of entertainment that makes a lot of money? Or do you want to make a film... That's going to last, stand the test of time. That probably won't make a lot of money. You got to sure. remember, Full Metal Jacket was not a big box office hit. Sure, and, and and films like we've said in the past, Blade Runner, all these films that now have transcended time and have a place in our and in, in the American culture and world culture, aren't always the films that made a lot of money. Same with Citizen Kane. You know what I mean? But I think but, know, it, it goes back to the you know, to be a great artist, maybe you can only be recognized. You know, after you're gone, you know, maybe you'll mm-hmm. only be, only your work will be, you know, fully appreciated, you know, after, you know, your time has passed or so right, forth. Right. But, um, but you know what, hold on. I, but, but I look at, I look at that top 10 list. Okay. And then I ask everyone to, to dump that list and go to the all time adjusted list, the all time top mm-hmm. 10 adjusted list, adjusted for inflation. That is your true top 10 list. That is the one that matters. That is the one that culturally are phenomenon films that people paid for. Um, that is your top 10 Titanic is not the number one movie of all time. I'm sorry to tell you that it's still going with the wind. It's gone with the wind. Okay. Star Wars. Number two sound gone with the wind did it on like nickel admissions. (laughs) Exactly. And so we can't even fathom, you know, the, 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 the cultural power that that film had, at that time, and that it transcends time till today. Okay, but you know, to be fair, what else was there to do but go see Gone with the Wind again? Sure, and that and that's and that and that's Heck, great. That was a and whole day of entertainment. And, and I'm know? not even saying, and I'm not even saying because I, I would rather watch Titanic today than Gone with the Wind. And you know, sorry, <laughs> I don't care, you know, what people think. But uh, uh, 
I think I think that what what I'm trying to say is is that let's be honest about this thing and try to set it instead of trying to market this thing. Okay, the marketing tool is the top ten domestic. The real list is you know Gone with the Wind, Star Wars, Sound of Music, um, then E.T., Ten Commandments, Titanic, and number six, Jaws, and number seven. I don't even know where Jaws is on the domestic list. Uh, Doctor Zhivago. Most people don't even know that the, the Doctor Zhivago exists. Hmm. You know, in your average, uh, you know, uh, moviegoer today, uh, The Exorcist number nine, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs number ten. Okay, hmm. there's only three movies that match up in those two lists: Star Wars, Titanic, E.T. Hmm. Okay, Sound of Music number three, the third biggest domestic film in American history, is The Sound of Music. Not Shrek 2. Okay? Right. Shrek 2 is a lot farther down the list than the adjusted. And I think when I look at that and we see how and we see how that affects us and we say, that's a much different list than the marketing tool of the domestic top ten that everyone's so happy to brag on. Then we say, okay, those are our cultural touchstones. Okay? Those are the films that go into the time capsule. They marked a time. Okay. Not that they, not that any one kind of film is better than another, okay? Because you know, uh, some of these films aren't great, but they marked a time. Now, where I'm going with this ultimately, as we're talking about this, is you, I want to go a step further, and I want to look at the future, okay? And how does this damage our future? And I, and I think what I said before is that if this is the trend towards the opening weekend and toward McMovies, which we know and we all you know we talk about is here's my question is it how does that bode well for filmmakers today um can real passionate filmmakers get a shot you know what i mean well and also there's a bigger question here you're not asking is is will the passion be there to make these type of challenging films that will be um pushing for you know a, a shelf life in history i mean it's I don't know if you can intentionally go out and make a cult film. You know, right. it just sort of happens. Right. You know, it's it's either through your own um, shortcomings or you know a lack of something that just makes the film quirky and likable for what it is. You know, it's just the combining of elements together, and you know, it becomes a cult movie. People embrace it for its greatness and sometimes for its badness. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. um, but you know, what didn't George Clooney have a quote recently? about the climate and how, you know, if you look back in history, you know, it's always, you know, during um, very difficult times in American history mm. to where the artists in all types of art forms, you know, the novelist, the right, uh, you know, the musician and filmmakers were doing some of the most thought-provoking work. We're, we're being provoked by the elements of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was crossing over into the work. Um, wouldn't you think that that is also an important element that needs to be there in order for that type of uh, work to come out through that filter? I mean, don't you think that it's just as important that filmmakers be reacting to the either political or emotional or social climate of the day in their work? And isn't that going to be the 
gas or oxygen or the juice or the ingredient necessary to to fuel the type of films you're talking about that are going to be reflective of this time in the future. No, that's that's vital. That's absolutely vital for films like Syriana to get made. Even and good e- night even, and good luck. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Even even if I personally don't agree with with that, that's fine. It doesn't matter. What matters is that films like that get made, and that's a good thing because they mark the time. But I think what I'm trying to say is this: is that that those are good. Those are good, that's a good desire. But I think you, you think about this as a filmmaker because you are a filmmaker. Okay. What I'm saying is is that is the studio perspective is why do I want to mess with that? Why do I want to get into that firestorm? Why do I want to you know? It's not like it's not like you know the films that were nominated for best picture this year were burning down the box office because they weren't. This was the this this year at Oscar was the indie slash uh, thought provoking slash you know story film that marked well, the time. In a way, it almost proves your argument this year's choices for best picture because they're all the type of films you are talking about right. that are out of the McMovie realm. Right. That are all, you know, almost out of the typical studio fare. Um, none of them fit the type of film that they say, yes, this is the type of movie we want to make. You know, the reason these type of movies get made is usually they're talent driven um, or they're awards driven. Maybe both, you know, prestige driven or the budget is just so low that it's better to keep a good relationship with the talent involved and let them go make the movie. Sure. I.e. good night and good luck. Then you know, put up a fight. You know, sure, but that's what's but that's eight fine, million but, dollars to Warner Brothers to go make that movie to keep George Clooney happy, sure, but or see, however much but, they spent. But I think you just said the point right there to keep George Clooney happy. That's the point is that he is box office to them, and so they they hand out these these little films like favors. Yeah. Hey, how do you think Full Metal Jacket got financed to keep Stanley Kubrick happy? Right. He got to do whatever he wanted to do. Right. Um, when filmmakers get a sense of power and control. That's when those type of movies get made. And that's what happened in our favorite period, you know, from the moment of the mid 60s through about, you know, 77, 78, the filmmakers had control of the asylum. Right. You know, and they were being allowed to make a lot of these odd and quirky pictures, you know, that, you know, I just I don't even know if a movie like The Last Detail with Jack Nicholson if they would just be burning up to make a movie like that, you know, today. Well, the point is um, because... It's very talky and not action-orientated. The, the studio's perspective is is that there's a place for the little art house film as long as it's being used to, you know, uh, promote a bigger agenda later. Like I said, they're handing it out like favors. That's why George Clooney can make this, and uh, Soderbergh can make this. Tell you what, Soderbergh, uh, will you make us Ocean's 13 now? So that well, you can it goes have back this. to that, you know, one for them, one for me theory. Sure. You know? But but what I'm saying is that ultimately and, and, and this is where I'm saying let's step off of let's step off of Hollywood's perspective for one second. Okay? Because obviously the Hollywood saloon is about well here here basically it's this, is that we're very blessed uh to have a a uh, listenership of a lot of people who are aspiring filmmakers. And I know and I know that for you and I that is that's really been cool for us because we converse with these guys. And and really one of the things that set this episode off also for me was that I had a pretty long conversation with one of the guys on our forums who I've become friends with, and I'm not gonna say his name, but he knows who he is, that uh he is completely down in the in in the in the dumps now because he has spent 
many, many years struggling, trying to become a filmmaker, writing scripts. You know, you know the drill. <laughs> You've been there. We both have. Um, having the dream to attain something. And recently, there was some sort of a, some sort of a deal where uh, some money was given out, like a ninety grand or something, uh, as this prize for young filmmakers. You know, it was like a, it was Canadian. It was a, and they were handing out this money. Uh, you know, as a uh, honorarium or something, saying, you know, we believe in young film talent. And we're gonna, you know, the government's gonna be behind this or whatever, whatever the group was. So the money was given out. Obviously, didn't go to the guy I'm talking about. And uh, they made this little film. He went to the, he went and saw the film. You know, at the, and he was devastated because it was crap. You know, they had been given this money and they just uh, threw it down the toilet, and. Being a struggling filmmaker today is different today than it was back in the days of Spielberg and Scorsese. Number one, because there was less of us. There wasn't, you know, Tom, Dick, and Harry saying, well, what I really want to do is direct. What I really want to do is direct. And what I'm saying with all this is that when you have someone who has given their life... Now, let's not forget talent. You know, if you're not talented, sorry, you're not going to make it. Just watch American movie, Okay. But in today's society, how the trend is setting up opening weekend and all that kind of stuff, it is less and less of a chance for a passionate filmmaker. Because if you are a first-time filmmaker, odds are going to be very difficult that you're going to make a hit right out the box, like a Blair Witch. That's a fluke. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a pet rock. It, it, it is. It's a fluke. And um, But... You know, if if the people who get to make the films financed by the studios now are big name actors who want to make that little film and all that kind of stuff, it's all staying within the thing, and it's harder and harder for regular folks like you and me, and the guys who listen to our show to break in, and it's affecting. Well, it's affecting. And I guess my big question is this: If Steven Spielberg was a filmmaker today, could he get in the door? Could Scorsese? Well, that old story of how he snuck on the Universal lot. Right. And got to hang out and, and watch stuff. Today you get arrested. You know, exactly. You go to jail. So no, that that old method, um, he could not. However, there's an inverse of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll rewind even one step further. You know, it's interesting that you know the the experience he had going and seeing that film, and being so you know disappointed in it. Because I've been like that before. Right. To where something that uh, you know going to see a film by someone I admire. Or, you know, something that I have high expectations for and they're completely not met. Right. You know, to the point to now where I have to think about, you know, you know, if this person's an instructor, am I really going to learn anything more from them? Or, you know, do how instructive am I to be towards them in the comments that I have? You know, you get put into a very difficult position sometimes because, you know, you want to be constructive. I mean, they completed the film. That's that's the major thing. Sure. But. I always found inspiration in those moments when I saw something that I was so disappointed in. It always made me want to go out and try and do it better. Right. Inspired you know, it you. was proof positive that if I could go see, I don't know, Demolition Man and not think it was all that great or Cliffhanger, we'll go write a better action movie, you know. Right. Use that as the fuel to try and do something better. But here's you know? here's but hold on a second. I got another comment. But okay. you know, and also what you were talking about, 
um, it does it you know it does take talent because if you don't have talent you're not going to make sure, it. Sure. Well, I'm going to say this right now: having talent also means you're not going to make it because right now there are more talented directors not working right. than there are directors working. Right. It doesn't. I mean, you're right. It doesn't dictate you getting in just because you or others think you're good. It 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 really takes more than just talent today. Spielberg had the talent. Kubrick well, the, the, had the talent. It's a different day in that you can't. It's not like training for a race, you know. Well, and also the mystique is 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 off filmmaking. You know, in the seventies and early eighties, it was still a mystery to the majority of people of how films were even made. Right. You know, you ask people what's a slate for. They don't even know what it does. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it makes this sound, but do they know that they're using it to sync up a soundtrack that's recorded separately from film? <laughs> right. And that they're both synced to run at the same speed, you know, through a crystal. Right. You know, these are just mechanics. You know, the mechanics of filmmaking have been simplified in the last 20, 25 years mm-hmm. to where even a novice can get very technically inclined and educated and proficient in a very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. We can build the young Spielbergs a lot quicker, you know, and give them the technical know-how because of the Spielbergs and the Scorsese's. Sure. You watch Scorsese's work, you can understand how to move the camera and do certain kind of cuts and how, you right, know, the right. cinematic language works and it doesn't just stop with him, it works with a lot of directors. And then you can get your hands on video equipment, editing equipment to try those things. But what I'm saying is, is because of all of that, you know, mm-hmm. we have all these technical skills. There's a long line of people right. that are also very technically proficient. What is key now is, is what is the story you're going to tell with all this great technique you've amassed and learned? What are the films you want to make? And if you want to go make Patch Adams too. <laughs> if if your desire is to to just churn out, you know, something that is just on the lowest common denominator of entertainment and it doesn't bother you, then there is a possibility for you to find success in Hollywood. Well, no, if you if you can walk the walk and sell yourself and 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 play the game, trust me, you're better off today than being a you know a tortured a tortured artist, because I think. You know, like you said, the studio system used to be there to where it was a filmmaker's game. That's not the situation today. We've turned into the nightmare that Robert Altman predicted in The Player. You know what I mean? We have become the studio machine. And and I guess what I'm saying is that from the young filmmaker's perspective who's got stars in their eyes and who has a dream, it's it's a different... You have to play the game differently today because it's not like... And this is where I faltered. This is where I failed. The way that it affected me was that, like everything else in my life, um, and, and I was fairly successful, and I'm going to be honest with you, one of the silliest films in the world um, influenced me, not you know, not necessarily in a filmmaking way, but uh, Rocky Three and the Rocky films in general. Because what it taught me and changed my, in my life was it said, if you work hard enough at anything... You can attain anything you want. And to a certain extent in life, that is true. Okay? If you want to be if you want to be the guy who lifts the most weights, you can attain that. You just have to lift weights every day, every day, every day, every day. If you want to be the fastest, if you want to be Lance Armstrong, to a certain extent, that is something that you can attain by hard work, hard work, hard work. Hollywood is not that way. Because, you know, for one thing, 
they sure as hell don't like uh, you know young enthusiastic kids cold calling their their uh, their studio and saying, "Hey, I want to be a filmmaker, and I've got great stories." You know what I mean? They're like, "Yeah, great, wonderful. Well, we'll take your name and we'll give you a call." Guess what? Not calling back. Okay, it's not going to happen. Well, they don't even. They're not allowed to take your call. I mean, that's the the thing is is the gates of Hollywood have insulation and they're called agents. That's right. And you can't get anywhere without them. Uh, they won't read your script unless it's a solicited screenplay through uh, a reputable agency right. or, in, or an agent. I mean, that's how the game works. Um, and it doesn't mean anything. Um, just even if you have written a good screenplay and you have an agent and the agent loves it and passes it around, it can still get rejected and sure. it doesn't mean it's a bad script. Why did Forrest Gump get rejected for eight, ten years before it was made? Well, you ain't got no legs, Lieutenant Dane. I mean, why did it make the rounds to all the studios and all the same studios rejected? Didn't they know they had an Academy Award-winning film on their hands when they read it? <laughs> no, they didn't. They had something they didn't understand. Right. They had something that didn't fit into a certain mold of what they were making, and it scared them, and so they passed on it. It's usually the films they pass on that turn out being the biggest, high, highest grossing films of all time. If you go through history, I mean, Home Alone was put in turnaround, you know, because <laughs> the studio didn't understand it. They were, you know, they passed on it. Right. You know, turns out to be a huge hit. Right. You know, Star Wars was put in turnaround from Universal. They didn't understand it. Right. You know, I mean, and then what's really odd is, is, you know, none of these films are being made. And then once one of them gets made, everyone wants a film just like it. Yeah. You know, there's the exactly. old Pulp Fiction story, you know. Yeah. That film, that screenplay went all around town. You know, TriStar turned it down, put it in turnaround. It was also rejected by many other studios. But as soon as Pulp Fiction comes out and it's a big hit, all these same people are now looking for the next Pulp Fiction. Boondock but Saints. Yeah. why are they going <laughs> to find it this time? They had the first Pulp Fiction the first time around, and they didn't recognize it that time. Right, and I think that's what, that's what we're, we're saying here is that it's not always the best script, the best person. I mean, how do we know that the next Spielberg's not out there somewhere and he just can't break in? Maybe he well, doesn't he have, is out there. Of course he maybe, is. I maybe mean, he doesn't I have the skills. I think all of the, our, our other great unknown artists are out there in the musical field. And right. there's a great novel out there that's yet to be written that's in somebody's head. I mean, I truly do believe that you know that material is out there. Right. Um, now, will it get out? I don't know. There's a lot more distractions today. Mm -hmm. You know, for a young filmmaker today, it's almost as if you want to get anything done, you need to turn off the Internet, get rid of your cable, get rid of all distractions, you know, because there's too many things to keep you from making movies, you know, <laughs> or writing books or making music. You know, there's so many great distractions. But see, what you're saying again is, and, and, and I just know, I mean, you have got one of the most positive outlooks I've ever known. And that's, I mean, I, I know that keeps you going. But at the same time, what I'm saying is, is that you always ascribe it back to work ethic, to if I just work hard enough, I will attain this. If I just talk to enough people, I will attain this. And and like you just illustrated with Forrest Gump, that's not always the case. Either that or it's a, or if some kind of thing where you have to be in the Hollywood system for so many years before someone finally says, okay, I'm going to give it a shot. And who has that time? You know what I mean? If, if, if fate is fate, okay, and you're going to be a director, let's just say, and fate has destined you to become the next Kubrick, how many years do you have to wait to get it? You know, I mean, 
you know, Moses had to wait 40 years in the desert before he went, you know, he went and got to do what he was supposed to do, even though God had already told him, you know, excuse my biblical reference there. <laughs> but, you know, how long does it take? Uh, if someone said, destiny has made it to where you will be the next Kubrick, but you've got to go live and slog away in Hollywood and eat, you know, uh, macaroni and cheese for 15 years. Are you willing to pay that price? Are you willing to live in L.A.? Are you willing to live? Are you willing to be a waiter for that many years? What about those people who are the actors in Hollywood, you know, who are waiting tables for years and years, waiting for that break, sure. trying think to make George, that break happen? Think of George Clooney on Facts Alive, you know? Well, but at least <laughs> you know, he had Facts that, Alive. You know, that this might lead to something else, you know? Well, but let's He's not, just happy let's, to be working. But let's not forget that George Clooney has a name. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget who his aunt was. Exactly, and he had to work his way, you know, through Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, a Return of the Killer Tomatoes. No, right? sure, but maybe he got the chance to do that because he had he had some well, sort of. Ties. It was easy for him to get representation, i.e., right. an agent. And then once you have an agent, it's very easy to get into auditions. You know, he can he can line you up, and you, they'll throw you in with everybody else. And if you're handsome uh-huh. and halfway competent, and you can deliver a decent line reading. You can't find roles in Hollywood. There's a lot of TV roles yeah, that but, have to get filled. But good luck finding an agent with so many people going after the job, you know. And look, I've had an agent in New York and L.A. before, and it didn't necessarily always equate to work for me. It equated no. to a few things. You know what I mean? At least I had the talent to get into the door and to get that recognition. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you also have to have a good agent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, relationships are the key, and that's why you know anyone that will tell you, you need to be there. I mean, what is going to get you the feature film? It's going to be the fact that when people sit across from you at a table, you exude confidence. You exude right. excitement. You exude trust. You exude this ability that they want to be in business with you, that they believe right. and they see your passion, and they see the film they want to make through you. That's how you get the job. I mean, if your reel doesn't look as good as the other director that was in before you, but you exhibit all those other qualities, they're going to go with you. You know, because if the other director has a fantastic reel, but is known to be a real ass and can be, you know, kind of a troublemaker and be very demanding and can go over budget and will, they might rather go with someone that is going to be a little bit more responsible and passionate, but, you know, maybe isn't quite, you know, as talented or as good, you sure, know? So sure. it can cut either way, but it's going to be the relationships well, and that's, that but, get you the work. But that's the question. Are those guys, are those guys just the whipping boys for, for the studios? Are these the McMovie guys? Is this the, is this the McG? Is this the, the, uh, you know, the Simon West is, or, you know, is this the WS, uh, these are commercial filmmakers, you know, right. commercial directors. But, what, know, but are, what I'm saying is, is that if they're not willing to align themselves, if the, if they'd rather take take Paul W S Anderson to do the next Alien movie as opposed to Ridley Scott, because Ridley wants more money, he's more demanding, he wants script you know approval, he wants final cut. Maybe see that's the deal. Is that then back to our original topic? We're making McMovies, and we're not making movies for the vault. We're not making movies for the time capsule. We're making movies yeah, for the weekend. But, you know, I think also sometimes they do think they are making movies for the vault, even though it's not. We have the hindsight of, you know, after it's all been said and done. But I'm sure there's those moments when it's being pitched that they always think it's going to turn out better than it does. Oh, come on. Do you, you, think- you almost have to, you know, in that industry... Otherwise, you'd be depressed all the time. You yeah, know? yeah. 
Because you know that so much of your stuff does not come out good, but you have to believe with each new one that it's going to be, it might work this time. You know, it just might. Because that's how those things happen. That's why Goldman says nobody knows nothing. Because nobody really knows it when it is a hit. Nobody knows it when it's not. I mean, everybody that saw Titanic a month before it opened, do you think they knew that they were about to see the highest grossing film of all time? Right. No. You think they treated it like that? Everyone was scared shitless before Titanic came out at Fox and Paramount, you know? Right. They were just praying that it might make 100, you know? <laughs> that if it did 200, boy, everyone might save their jobs, you know? It's just nobody knew, you well, know, because you cannot predict the audience. And it does go back to Blair Witch. And it's a film that I'm not necessarily a big fan of, but I am a fan of its accomplishment and the ability for it to penetrate the marketplace and to find uh, an audience out there and to show that you can go out there with a lot of creativity uh, and make a film that people can embrace and can see and, you know, it can become a cult. Because um, you did not need 35 millimeter equipment, you did not need a studio right, budget right. for that movie. Right. You know, yes, is that movie a fluke? And can those kind of movies come out all the time? No, you know, they they gotta, you know, they hit their their time and their stride. You know, it's just like look at what the culture of films was like before sexualized videotape came out. Right. You know, and suddenly it was just like, wow, that's like a a real film. You know, that isn't <laughs> like Batman. Right. Know, or something right you know? right it, it seemed like it was you know a, a weighty film you know of of high artistic merit mm-hmm. you know just compared to what was you know in the cluttered marketplace at the time you know there's always room for little films like that i think and i know but i guess i guess what i'm saying is that as a young filmmaker you can't bank on that you you, you can say you just gotta oh, trust hopefully your instincts you know you you said how long does it take you know mctiernan had a quote that it takes about 20 years to develop a style right in any art form whether you're a painter or a musician you know but that's just getting comfortable with your instrument if you have been playing the guitar for 20 years when you pick it up you don't think about the frets you don't think about where to put your fingers they fall into place naturally but you're not like that the first year on the guitar. You're constantly trying to figure out things and whatnot. But when you continually play it and play it and play it, it becomes an extension. It becomes a part of you. And filmmaking is, is no different. It can get to the point where all of the technical aspects of filmmaking are like breathing. You right, know? Right. So then it becomes what is going to excite me? What material is going to get me excited enough to want to spend a year or two of my life making a film about it? Well, I think ultimately, you know? I think ultimately the answer to all this and we said it before is don't try to break into hollywood don't play the game just unless that's the game you want to go play no, you no know? because well if you you know if what, you want to go be a television director no no then no, no that's no. the place to go if, be if you want to play the game you go and be a first ad you know what i'm saying if you if that's sure the, you if, go enroll in the program right if, if, if that's what you want to do Go into that route. There's not a lot of roads from first AD to director. Okay, it's a totally different ball game. But those ranks you can work up through. You You're can st- now now moving second unit to director can happen. Oh, of know. course, of course. What I'm saying is is that there's a there's a process of things, and this is what our schooling was trying to teach us was that it's very easily possible to start as a PA, to start as a grip, and to move up the ranks. You know, to become DP, let's say. 
and there's some DPs that jump from DP to director. You know, Jan DeBont. There's a you few. Know, uh, there's Sonne- a few. Sonnefeld. Jack Green is directed, and Michael Chapman is directed. Sure. I mean, but a lot the, of them will direct a film just to try it. Sure, and, and, and that's an exceptional human being. You know what I mean? Peter Himes. You know, someone mm-hmm. who shoots and can direct. Okay, mm-hmm. and, ex- and has been doing it a long time, right? And regardless of the quality of the movies, absolutely a- exceptional human beings. Okay, um, and, and that's entirely possible, but it's not going to be this overnight success. It's not going to be that you are going to get to direct. It's not going to be that you're going to walk up and say, "Hey, Hollywood, I'm here. Check out my film." And after you check that out, how about I get to go make Desperado? You know what I mean? Well, it it. I mean, it, that seems to be the pathway nowadays is is a lot of young filmmakers will go make their independent movie. I mean, look at Karen Kusama, who did Girl Fight, you know? Right. She goes and makes this small little gritty film that, you know, does make a star out of Michelle Rodriguez. Right. And then what's her next film? You know, she piddles around in Hollywood. You know, I say piddle. Maybe I shouldn't use that word, you know. But she takes meetings around Hollywood and decides she's going to do the big budget Aeon Flux, you know, which is probably an exciting prospect for a female director to be doing in Hollywood, you know. But the film's here, gone, forgotten, you know. And, you know, I don't know what her next move is going to be. Is she going to get back to the kind of, you know, roots of the kind of film and filmmaking she was doing to get the job in Hollywood, or is she going to continue on this Hollywood sort of pathway? Right, and that's and that's what we don't and know. And it could a be lot the... of independent filmmakers face this. You know, I mean, look at the guy Justin Lin who did that um, Better Luck Tomorrow that gets a lot of notice for its honesty about teenage life, mm-hmm. and it's kind of has a gritty gritty feel to it. Right. And then he goes off and does Anopolis for a big studio movie. You know. That that James Franco thing that kind of came and went, and then his next film is Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. You oh, know, wonderful. He has become a Hollywood, you know, studio director. Now maybe those are his aspirations. Nothing wrong with that. We need people to make those type of movies, also. So the calling card is the question. You know that you're right. you're getting at is what is the calling card? And a lot of times, it is a quirky, independent, fair film that gets you noticed because. If you make one of those movies and it does get into a festival, you will get the phone calls in Hollywood. You will get asked to meetings. Everybody will make you feel like a genius, basically. You know, right. That's one thing Hollywood is going to make sure to do is even if they don't sign a deal with you, they want to make sure they have a good relationship with you. Because you know? You know, nobody wants something to, to bite them back you know, a few years later. Right. But uh, those opportunities will open. Now... What is the reality of film festivals? If you go out and you, you spend the family's $30,000 on your little independent film and you finally do get it made and uh, you want to get it seen. I mean, naturally, through the Internet, you have an outlet for your movie today. Right. You know, you don't need HBO. You don't need anything. You can get it on the Internet. And if you can find a way to get people to link to your site, you know, somehow you can get well, now, traffic there. Now, hold on. Before we even go down that route, let's just say this. Go back to this guy who you were talking about who did Better Luck Tomorrow. If the ultimate goal is to just be a Hollywood director and you and it's to, to make a little independent film so that you can come that, – that it's a calling card, that it's a resume so that you can make films like you know, Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. 
Is that going to even be go to the theaters? Or is that going to go straight to DVD? It'll go to theaters. I mean, why do you think John Singleton signed on for Too Fast, Too Furious? Right. But but I think what I'm saying is is that really, and it's not that it's a sellout or anything. But where are the Kubricks? Where are the guys who say, you know, I, I could spend you know ten years developing this. Now it's hard. You know, it's hard to make a living. I guess you know what I mean. Think about uh, Terrence Malick. I mean, you know, he takes that number of years to make those films. You know what I mean? That gestation period. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? To let a film grow and to breathe and all that kind of stuff. Those are the films that people are going to remember, like I was talking about at the beginning of the show. But if it's to the point where, really, a filmmaker's goal is just to get in on the game, what's your point? You're going to make another small movie that everyone's going to, everyone's going to forget in six months? You know that'll make a little bit of coin here, and you can you can go and buy your buy your house. Is is, is being a filmmaker a means to something else for you? Is being a filmmaker? Well, it, you know, yeah, exactly. Because there's nothing wrong with punching the clock and being a filmmaker. You know, it it sure. beats being a video store clerk or a sure. video game tester or whatever your your profession is. If your profession, you go in and you direct and right. you go home every evening and you know you put good work. Day in, day out for 20 years, that's very respectable, you right. know? And you're living the dream. You're doing what you want to be doing. I just, I think what happens is, is maybe reality settles in and people realize they're not going to be Kubrick because nobody can, you know? Maybe having the, the ideas of thinking you're going to reach those kind of uh, single digit aspirations is what I call them, you know, because sure. there's very few that are ever going to reach those kind of, of course. you know, uh, pantheons. I mean, I can only think of a handful of filmmakers that have reached it. You know, Tarantino certainly, you know, has, has become a name brand for a very small and it happened in a very you know short amount of time. It did for David Fincher as well. It just doesn't happen to a lot of filmmakers, though. But if you have the juice to be able to make a film that Hollywood notices, you have the ability to try to make something happen with that and to make something more. Now, look, uh, I was reading an article recently about uh, 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 McRatner, okay? Uh, not to pick on him again, but he said uh, in this article, they were quoting him as saying, I think people, I don't understand all the backlash. I don't understand why people have a problem with me. I think they're just jealous that I'm successful. Hey, you know what? That's great that he's successful. There's nothing wrong with being a working director. I think the problem is that his films do not transcend. They do not become more. They are not like Fight Club. They're not movies that are going to be put into any kind of a vault anywhere. And I think people, when they see someone handed a plate of good cookies over and over and over again, which in Hollywood today you get, if you generate money, you get the opportunities to make something more, okay? Mm-hmm. But when you continually turn these movies into nothing but, you know, week, you know, first weekend numbers and movies that are easily forgettable, then people will say, you know what? You're fine, but your films don't transcend. They don't endure. They don't become anything, okay? I mean, look at Rodriguez, you know? I think Rodriguez is extremely talented. We've talked about him before. But, you know, doesn't he really have these films? I mean, I mean, I mean maybe, maybe, maybe Sin, Sin City, to a certain extent, is that... For a lot of people, that, that seems to be a uh, transcending film. Right. That's a transcending film. That's a film that might endure. And we'll see what happens, because they're going to do a sequel. But... What I'm saying is is that when he made films like, you know, and it's not that every film has to transcend. You know what I mean? The Spy Kids movies, 
all his 3D movies and that. It's not that everything – it's perfectly okay to be a commercial film director if that's what you want. But the point is is that you know there's a million other people that want that job. And if you continue to make films that just lie there on the screen and are forgettable, people will eventually say, well, why do you get to have that shot? Well, and it's also, it's not always the director's choice. It's just, it's the studio's choice. We're not buying that concept this year, but we will buy this one. Do you want to direct it or not? Right. You know, it's not like the olden days. I mean, Terry Gilliam has a good story about, you know, how he got Brazil made. And it goes something like, um, 20th Century Fox had a big sci-fi project called Enemy Mind, and it was the big thing that they were going to put all their resources into, mm-hmm. okay? And they went down the top list of all the top directors, you know, from the Spielbergs all the way down. And because Time Bandits was a hit, Gilliam had suddenly moved up on that list. Right. You know, he was like number six. Well, the first five guys all turned down this movie. So Gilliam was brought in, but he was treated like he was number one on the list. Yeah. And, you know, it's like... They were flabbergasted when he turned them down. It's like, well, what are you talking about? We're offering you this great thing, you know, and, and blah, blah, blah. And he says, well, I don't want to do that movie. I want to do this movie, Brazil. Uh-huh. And it caused them to reevaluate and say, well, wait a second. If this guy who's high on this list doesn't want to do our big thing and would rather do this one, maybe we should be doing that movie instead well amen man the climate's not like that today i know today it's more like oh wait a second we know what we want to make well we know what we don't want to make but let's not forget what happened with brazil because they chickened and ran at the end well this was 20th century fox that made this this call yeah they Uh, what happened was it got divided up fox took uh foreign and universal who was the uh, mustache twirler in the story, took domestic, and Universal's the one that tampered with the film. Gillian was allowed to go out and make and shoot and cut the film, and he turned it into Fox. Fox loved it and released it internationally untouched. It was the domestic cut that Universal thought that, no, we can make a more commercial movie out of this. And the same thing happened to Legend. You know, both those films went through the same Universal uh, regimen and were... You know, consequently, cut down into drastically different versions to try to placate a commercial audience. See, I think I think that's the difference here. Let's, I mean, I think in the end, we we can't forget when you look at everything in general that we're talking about a business here. Okay, um, you know, when Eisenstein was creating his editing techniques and 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 playing with editing and and the emotional response to it. It wasn't like he was trying to create something that would sell. He was just saying, "I'm creating because I must." You know, I, I, I'm I'm doing. You know, you could define it as art, if you will. You know what I mean? If you're that kind of a filmmaker and you wanna and you want to experiment and you want to try something new and something different, you better have your own money because they're not going to let you do it. And if they don't think that you have films. They can make their money. And you know what? It's not even films. It's it's even something as small as music videos. And it's just something as small as $5,000 music videos. Well, that's the place for somebody that wants to do those type of but it's, but it's But it's not. Commercials and music videos no. is the perfect medium. No, it's not. It's not. Because they're still making... Because you know what? $10 million to, uh, to a, a medium-sized studio is a lot of money. You know what I mean? A uh, hundred million dollars to a big studio is a lot of money. 
But when you make a music video and you're talking about a upstart record label, you know, $80,000 for a video is a lot of money, you know, and they're not just going to, they don't just want someone to experiment. Hey, it's a music video. We're going to experiment. That's a lie. They have to trust you with $80,000 that you're going to make something that can sell their product. Let's not forget your number one priority is not to experiment as a filmmaker. It's to yeah, sell but it, it seems records. like there's a lot of music video directors that seem to thrive, and I'm thinking of the Michelle Gondry and what Stefan. Well, sure, but Michelle Gondry didn't get that chance until he made about you know 50 videos. No, I mean fair enough. You know, you, you know what I mean. You do have to build up a certain amount of of you know respect and a catalog of work that will will demonstrate a confidence that's going to let you. Well, and you know, and it's got things. and it's got to be that you know. That you're, uh, you know, you're, you're probably the power of your of your music star has got to say, I want him. Yeah, I want that guy because you know, don't. And just... we're going to let him do whatever you want. You know, right. full creative freedom to just allow you to do something very different. That's how a lot of those groundbreaking exactly. videos got made in the first place. Exactly. You know? When you two wants wants a certain director, do you think the record company's going to go? No, 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 no. We want someone safer. Of course not. You two is going to get what the hell you two wants. Sure. You They're usually I mean? going to get who's ever on the cutting edge doing the, the hottest work. You know, right? It keeps them fresh and relevant as well. And so, and that's any, and that's what the the musicians are looking for. Same thing with film. There is not a place to experiment with filmmaking other than your garage. Okay. And a lot of times, don't consider that that's something that you can put on your resume. Sure, it's something that will show you're talented, but it doesn't mean that it's bank. You know, in today's system, it's not just talent. It is talent yeah. plus. But you bring up plus. a good thing, you know, uh, being able to make films in your garage. Because we just re- both recently watched Primer. Right, exactly. A film that was made in somebody's garage. Fantastic you know, movie. That was made on video equipment that is sitting right now in your living room. Right. You know, edited on equipment that, you know, you currently have on your PC. You know, there wasn't anything that those guys had that you don't have and that I don't have and many people in our audience don't have except what they were willing to give up in order to get it sure. made. Sure, and that's and that's a whole different that's a different show talking about things like film festivals and how to get recognized. I thought that Well, I mean, uh, it's just it's the point of is that the outlet for that script was not to try and get it through the Hollywood system. Absolutely. You know, it wasn't try to get financing for. It was like, listen, let's just make it ourselves. Sure. It'd be a lot easier if we just make the movie, even if it's just a demo version of our movie. Right. But it'd be a lot easier than trying to pitch it. And as it turned out, you know, a lot of people liked what they did, and they were able to get it distributed. Well, and now and let's able to hope get it out there. And now let's hope that they want to do something equally as interesting. And I think you know they're going to be able to take meetings based on that movie, sure, sure. You know, and we'll see now what you know that calling card has done for them. So I do think for the filmmakers out there, and it hasn't really changed. It's still all about the calling card films. But I just don't even think you should limit yourself to to only be thinking about a feature film. I think you should write your own feature, but you should also maybe do go out and do a commercial, go out and do a music video, go out and do a short film, experiment in all of them, get proficient in a lot of different areas. What I'm saying is, is that what I'm saying is that all right. Let's say you win this political capital, you win this this capital with the film studios. You've made an independent film for zero dollars. Um, they've bought it. They've turned a profit, and now they want to give you a present. Okay? Why would you spend that capital if you want to be a serious director 
on making something like Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift on something that is just a Mick movie. You, I mean, what a ridiculous way to spend capital. You know what I mean? If you have a little bit, you know, spend it in a way that you're gearing toward a future. What if Spielberg's first movie after Jaws would have been, you know, uh, 1941 instead of Close Encounters? Would he have gotten the next movie? You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, uh, you know, they always say you're only as good as your last film, you know, in Hollywood. And I guess it's, you know, it's how you spend that capital once you have gotten it. And if you're, if you're just willing to sell it on, you know, the third sequel in a, in a lame movie series, that's, you know, somewhat of a joke, um, you know, is that spending it in the correct way? Because if that thing doesn't go through the roof monetarily, you know what I mean? And let's just say, oh, and let's take another route. Let's say it does go through the roof. Do you think they're going to let you go and direct, uh, you know, the movie you've always wanted to make? No. They're going to want you to follow it up with the same type thing. Well, and that's the thing is, is you know, if it's a movie you always want to make, you know, you, you have to – you got to be so passionate about wanting to make it. You know, you got to be so headstrong. You know, think about Costner and Dances with Wolves and how headstrong he was to get that made. You know, which was not a commercial project at the time, but he was able to use his clout to push it through. Right, but that was his clout. That was how he decided to spend that. Well, that, and that's how you know any director out there has to. You know, it's cashing in your clout and weighing how much it is. And right. a lot of it is, is it comes down to you know the cost of the thing, you know, and, and how much it is. Maybe the budget is too low. At right. $8 million, a lot of studios can't be bothered with it. But if you bump it up to 20, then they might be interested in it. You sure. know, it's weird how, and, and it's odd how things work that way. Gilliam said the same thing happened with uh, Brazil is they had it budgeted too low. And when they added like an extra 5 million, suddenly they started getting more interest in it. You know, <laughs> it's, it's weird how people perceive films. If it's perceived as too low of a budget, it might be too small of a film for a major studio to be dealing with. Right, you know, right. they're only looking at a price tag, not at the finished product per right, se. Right. You know, um, that has to change. Mm-hmm. And when that does change, a lot more of what you're talking about and the kind of films you're talking about will filter through the system again because it's all about cost and econ- economics. And when you remove that equation, if all movies cost $10 million, every movie that comes out, let's right. just play fantasy for a second. Right, you know? right. And it's, you know what the cost is. It's the same cost every time out. Well, then you're going to want to experiment, you know? It's like, well, okay, we just put out 25 comedies in a row. Let's do something different, you know? (laughs) Let's try something just to to throw the mix in there because it's the same cost. And if it doesn't stick, you go back to comedies the next week, you know? You know you have something to fall back on. People are pretty scared to take chances, though, man. They're real scared. They're scared when it costs money, a lot of money. Yeah. And that's why when, when your budget starts shooting up, you want those names, attached because there's a security to having names attached i mean failure to launch the the only thing that script has going for it is two names attached right yeah the fact that an actor and an actress agreed to do it and then they were able to cast you know some of the other roles but you know that's about it really i do think that you know what lucas is talking about is true Mm -hmm. and i do feel like it's when the costs come down and suddenly it's re- it's a little bit more reasonable, there'll be a lot more room and flexibility for those type of pictures. And also, you know, those type of pictures will get made independently. And when they're successful, 
others will get made like it. You know, distribution is going to change once digital gets into cinema screens. Everything is going to change. You might have right. films that only play three days, you know, right. or one day, one day only. You know, mm-hmm. the type of programming, and we talked about this, but all that is going to change. But uh, on the other hand, there are still going to need lots more programming because we're always we're going to demand it that much faster. You know, we're consuming it so fast, we're going to need even more of it. Well, and hopefully that'll leave doors open for filmmakers who, you know, can somehow find a way to get through the massive crowd and let themselves be known. And, well, if you're, you know, if you're a filmmaker, you make films. You don't talk about it. You do it. Right. You don't whine and saying, well, only if I could get this budget or that budget. Well, yeah, if you're only talking about making a space movie with, you know, special effects that are going to cost $200 million, if those are the only kind of <laughs> movies you want to make, you're going to be spending a lot of time dreaming about them in your head. Right. Because you're not going to be able to realize those on your own. Right. But it doesn't mean that you can't be a filmmaker using the practical tools of what's available to you, you know, using your available surroundings. And you can even do, you know, pretty creative special effects, but at least learning the uh, the toolkit, you know, practicing yeah. enough to where you feel confident that you can walk onto a set and, and pretty much, you know, dictate how to photograph a scene properly and get enough coverage to where you can uh, you can get what you need. Now let me bring this all together so we can wrap this up. And I guess the way we got to talking about breaking into the film industry was that does the weekend trend affect that? I think it does. I think it makes it harder. Plus there's this glut of people who just, you know, they think they can. They think they have a right to. And it's 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 a very different situation. You know what I mean? Well, the best thing to do is write a great script. Learn the skills of filmmaking. Practice your technique. And while you're doing it, write a script that's so good that basically they have to let you make it. And that has happened many, many, many times. You know, right. it's one success story after another. And they held on to it. You know, they might have written one commercial script that they sold, but then they wrote that other script. And they weren't going to give it up unless they got to direct it. You know, right. Um, right. that's Ooh. the best way to break in. I think is just write a script that's so good. Do the Stallone thing with Rocky. You right. Know? right. It's you. You attach, you attach yourself, yourself to it, and then right. you're elevated when your project is. Well, and that's great. And and that's I guess that's one of the preferred routes. Um, but like I said, bring this all together. We went from one point to one point to one point. Does it affect? our future by looking at who's coming in today. And I think we have to look out at our future and I can only hope that we get films, you know, on a yearly basis, you know, give me, give me five films on a yearly basis that are going to endure, you know, give me three films that are going to endure. You know what I mean? I mean, some people may think that Brokeback is going to endure because of its, you know, because it's trying to, you know, uh, change minds and change hearts on a certain uh, political issue or just issue in general. If it's a good film, it will endure. Most good films do. Right. Um, and, and, and and I would hope that that film and other films would get based on what they are as a film alone. Okay? But but that's beyond it. I, I think... You know, I my, think my, do, my feeling on Crash is it will endure because it won the Academy Award. Right. I mean, that's the only reason why is because it'll be on a list. You know, it'll be on a list. Oh, this year this did it, but you know whether or not it's that kind of a film. You know, uh, you know, uh, Full Metal Jacket doesn't need an award. It doesn't need a nomination to endure. No, it didn't. And I think it only got a nomination for screenplay. Right. When uh, when the awards, you know, finally did come out. 
But, uh, you know, think about all the years in 95. I mean, it wasn't like Apollo 13 versus Braveheart, right? Right. You know, is Braveheart going to endure? Probably so, you know. Probably so. Uh, but Apollo 13 will also. It will know? because it's it's very historical. It marks a time. I, I it, think... goes, it goes back to the type of film you're talking about, right. you know. It's making a film that will have... It'll still play just as well 10 years from now because it's just about that time period. Right. That's why, I mean, I think Days to Confuse is a perfect movie because it, it's right there in 1976, you know. And 20 years from now, it'll still depict that time period perfectly, you know. It'll, it'll be a little time capsule film. And I think, I think that's my hope and that's my desire. And that's what really I got set off toward was I want and I hope for that – you know, films that would make you know AFI's top ten list are films that will be remembered. Still, continue beyond just box office. You know what I mean? I I I guess you know. And we've talked you know we've talked you know opening weekend stuff into the dirt and you know apocalypse Hollywood shows and whatnot. So I don't want it to be that again. But I think that Hollywood ultimately, in the long run, hurts itself with this continue continued chopping away at movie you know money that can be spent on bigger and better you know more meaningful films you know films not just movies not that there's anything wrong with movies occasionally but that that that's what it is every weekend you know it's like here comes uh, Dougal you know here comes Hoodwinked you know we're choking to death on these you know rip off uh, you know animated cartoons now that come out every weekend and they're not going to be remembered. They're just going to be quickly forgotten. They came out, they make their little money, and then they're going to be gone. They're like Saturday morning cartoons, you know? My fear and my hope come together here because I, I, I don't want these films to be lost, that we have a future for great, transcendent, enduring films, you know, films that become a legacy. Well, they seem to find a way to fight their way through the system, at least the great ones do. And some of them might have to spend 10 years before they get made. You know, right. some might slip through a lot, you know, uh, a lot quicker. You know, it just it all depends on when you can get that film made. When is the right time? Um, but uh, it's having the passion and the drive to want to make that film. And, and that's going to push it. And again, it's that old adage. Maybe you might have to make one for the studio in order to get, you know, a film made for yourself. Soderbergh's been doing it brilliantly um, with the type of films that he's chosen to make. Uh, both commercial and uncommercial alike. Sure. But I mean, you know, will Solaris stand the test of time? Well, I'm glad it's there, you yeah, know. Yeah, sure. And uh, I'm glad, I like Ocean's Eleven too. I'm glad I get to enjoy both pictures, you know. Sure. And uh, enjoy the output uh, that is resulting from the fact that Ocean's Eleven and Twelve were both hits. My hope is that the future filmmakers are not held back from the studio's desire to make the quick buck. Now, the studio is going to do what they want to do, and it's always been about the buck. But I think that the only way that the filmmaker today can can survive, you know, the guys who listen to our podcast, the guys who have who are passionate about filmmaking, is let's get our mind off Hollywood. Well, I let's mean, get our mind on the film itself. And you know what? If it's good enough, hopefully, you know. And it's you're not just being a filmmaker to to you know you know punch the clock. If you are fine, but I I got a vibe that the people who want to listen to what we you know talk endlessly about, uh, 
I, I think they want to do something more. I think they want to create something and have a say and leave something. I mean, what great greater honor is there on this earth that you might leave a legacy? That Kubrick has left us his films, and within his films he still lives today. That we have that picture of the man. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That that we can still you know see him and, and you know, he he tracked the, the camera here, you know he's all over that film, and I think that you know ultimately the power of the medium, the power of film, is that if you have the talent and if you can somehow passionately lock into that kind of work, even if it's a comedy, I mean, you can make a great comedy, a brilliant comedy. Well, you know. A lot of these questions that you're wrestling with were dealt with in the film called Sullivan's Travels. Mm. You know, and I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but you know, it's a story about a filmmaker that uh, that makes very popular entertainment pictures, but he yearns to make the important social picture. So he goes out across America, searching, you know, for the real life stories and you know, in- integrating with people and. You know, he gets involved in a couple of, uh, you know, mishaps and mistaken identity, and he actually ends up in prison. And he has a revelation in there when one of his films is shown in prison, and it brings laughter and joy to people's lives. Right. And he realizes there is great power, and there is great artistry, and there is, you know, giving something back by making those types of pictures, because those are the pictures that people need just as much as the other types as well. They are just as important, and they are part of our fab work. Right. And that's something that that director goes to as he starts to realize is that the film that he's yearning to make, the intent that he's searching for, is already in the films that he's already making. You know, right. and you know this—it's it, going to be different for every filmmaker out there. But uh, the question is: is can we get an important balance? Of, of food on our plate dished to us, i.e. through the system that delivers these films. Now, when films get cheaper, it's going to be a lot easier for somebody with outside of studio money to finance movies. You know, um, you know, to, to raise a million or two million to make a sexualized videotape is always going to be realistic with the right script and the right actors attached. You know, there will right. be money available. So it comes down, can you write a script that can get the talent attached to it, that can get it made, you know? And how badly do you want to get it made? Are you willing to sacrifice five years of your life to get this one little small picture made that maybe nobody will see and that maybe you'll end up on a DVD shelf and that will be discovered ten years later? Uh-huh. You know? right. right. I mean, it's, again, these are all the... the uh, these are all the other outside elements. It's all about the film. The reward is making the film. That's right. And if it's anything else, you might be in the wrong business. All right, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode of the Hollywood Saloon. And to help me through, I got a couple of guys here. What's up, guys? Oh, fine. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Wesley and Lucas, my boys here. Uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the saloon. I just want to invite everybody over to our website, of course, at www.hollywoodsaloon.com. Hollywoodsaloon.com. That's right, hollywoodsaloon.com. And on our website, you can uh, there's some links to uh, various things you can do. You can go to our forums where there's a lot of good discussion going on. Uh, last time I checked, we got like 3,000 posts there, more than 3,000 posts, so... 
a lot of people talking over there, so it's a lot of fun. If you want to be involved and be in the discussion, uh, all you got to do is um, come over to the, to the forums right there off of our main page. And uh, you can also go to our special edition page. That's a new thing. Yeah, pretty cool, huh? And you get extra stuff there. And uh, like I said in the last episode, we've got our Wall of Heroes Part 1 up. And uh, we'll be having Part 2 up there pretty soon. But uh, And that's just shows you can get that aren't on the regular feed. You can check those out at the special edition page. Um, but anyways, as usual, we have our Frapper map. And uh, we caught up last episode with like 23 folks. So we're going to go ahead and... Uh, knock out the new few ones we've gotten since then and want to start off with Pete C. And where's he from? Sydney, Australia. That's pretty far away, huh? Yeah. And what does he say? I'm a Sydney filmmaker. These two guys are brilliant. Wow, that's nice. I, I, I don't think we're really brilliant, but it's nice that uh, it's nice that he would say that. So thanks, Pete. And uh, then we have Jarek all the way from England. <laughs> And uh, he's on the forum. Stop with those noises, little boy. Why, why do you keep making throw-up noises? <laughs> is that what three-year-olds do? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, anyways, Jarek is from England, across the big pond there. Uh, thanks for tuning in, Jarek. Um, I uh, want to mention Dusty. And you guys know Dusty, right? Yeah. Dusty's our cousin. Well, I guess my second cousin, you're... I don't even know what cousin he is, but he's a he's a cousin of ours, and he's got a picture there of his favorite movie uh, from *Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas*. And his quote is, "This is what the hip world would be doing if the Nazis won the war." By Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, that doesn't sound very good. No, I don't want to be a hippie. A hippie? What? No, a Nazi. I don't know what the heck that is. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> So uh, thanks, Dusty, for listening and signing up on the map. Uh, coming in next is Dan Kinnam. And he's got a really cool picture from the movie 2001. Have you ever seen Stanley Kubrick's 2001? Have you ever seen Stanley Kubrick's 2001? How was it? It was good? So anyways, Dan Kinnam and his 2001 picture. And he goes by Criterion Master and he is on our forums quite a bit and uh, so uh, he's made about a zillion posts and he really loves a Criterion uh, edition DVDs and he's made that love known on our on our forums so uh, we appreciate you being there and he also has a blog and it's called uh, Four Onion Rings and I don't know what that means. Do you like onion rings? Sometimes, sometimes not. Okay, so uh, you can you can get to his blog via our links page. Just go down there into the blog to the listener blogs sections, and uh, here's what he said about us. He said, "How do you guys do it? I would love to hear some talk on Kurosawa to hear your thoughts on him." Very good. You said Kurosawa perfectly. I have no clue what to say. Have you ever heard? Of, have you ever seen a, a, a film from Kurosawa? No. Do you know who Kurosawa is? Oh, uh, he's probably a director, isn't he? Very good. Where do you think he would be from with a name like that? Japan. Very good. Oh, check out the big brain on Brad. I'm not from. I'm not Brad. I mean, from from Wesley. Yeah. Check out the big brain on Wesley. All right. Anyway, so um, 
Uh, thanks, Criterion Master. And our last guy up here, his name is Torin. He's from California. So that's the people on our Frapper map. And, uh, what? Wait, you you were already on the Frapper map. Yeah. Your, your SpongeBob picture was already on the Frapper map a while back. Yeah. I know, it was good. Did you, did, why didn't you say my name? I said it in the last episode. You didn't even hear it. Oh. You don't listen to Hollywood Saloon enough, do you? No. No, that's all right. You will see. <laughs> your film education. You better cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> your film education has slowly slowly begun and will continue. <laughs> so that's about it for this week. And uh, we're going to play with some Legos here and uh, maybe watch some Kurosawa. And uh, so thank you guys for helping me out. And um, say goodbye. 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 What does Chewbacca say? What does Kurosawa say? I have no clue. <laughs> All right, and we'll see you next time. Listening to the Hollywood Saloon.